This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, soaring brooms and leaping sharks, sport and competition in speculative fiction. My god, it's come. It's arrived. It's, it's, it's our, arrived. It's our sports episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're not a big sports fan, don't be put off because this is very much sport in the context of writing. Yes. And obviously, in particular, speculative fiction. Yes. Uh, um, we, we briefly mentioned sport and competition as buttery goodness, but there's a whole episode's worth of topic here, so we're going to try and tackle that today. Yes. We're going to try not to overrun. Um, uh, <laughs> we'll be good. We've, we'll be good. <laughs> we haven't been wildly successful at that for a while now. No, we haven't. Now, whether you like sport, uh, both watching it or taking part or not, you as a human being are wired towards needing to compete in some capacity as is everyone to a greater or lesser degree. By and large, we're not a super active species whose daily survival depends on being able to walk 20 miles in uh, in a day or to run down a deer or anything like that, um, at least not anymore. But we still do have that itch that does need to be scratched. Yes, um, and in addition, Speculative fiction has the added attraction of adding magic or science to a mundane sport, or inventing a new one entirely, so that's what we're getting into today. Yes. And not gonna lie, there are so many times... For example, people just sort of talk about, oh, if you could fly, would you be able to fly? And the fact of the matter is, is that flying is, you know, another would be another form of exercise. <laughs> if you had wings, you would be exercising. But the speculative aspect of it just makes it so much better if we could all fly it would just be a bleh kind of thing yeah but it's because we can't (laughs) (laughs) okay so let's have a look at sport in the context of world building and speculative fiction um when i really thought about it i found it it's quite astounding that more speculative fiction authors don't include sport when creating worlds because it's kind of a relatively easy thing to put in the background that just adds a little bit of local cultural colour. Yeah. And yet so many of us, me included, I haven't really talked... I mean, okay, admittedly, I write mostly urban fantasy at the moment, but if I wrote epic fantasy, I don't think sport would necessarily occur to me straight out of the gate. And yet it's a really useful one to add. Yeah, absolutely. Sport is an important part of cultural history. Now, that includes things like martial arts, dancing, horse horse skills, racing, archery, fencing, and also team sports like football and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so for example, if we look at martial arts, well, certainly Eastern martial arts are rooted in religion and spirituality from the area. Yes, exactly. That, that's, that's talking about it very broadly, because obviously Eastern martial arts are a huge, huge subgenre of martial art in themselves. But it's like if you looked at martial arts in terms of the English context or the British context or the UK, mm-hmm. um, there's the, the, the history of the longbow and archery in Wales and in England. There is the English quarterstaff. Um, that there's the English, the the early English uh, boxing, and you know bare fist fighting and things. There is the 
uh, bare knuckle boxing that is done by by the Romani and by the Irish travellers and things. So you know, a lot of these things are rooted in a cultural history and they have a lineage. Yeah, and even things which don't actually sort of have that long of a history can still be very deeply rooted in culture. So for example, if you look at sort of football and things like that, um, in terms of particularly how they appeared out of sort of among mining communities, among factory workers or things like that, certain teams arising, um, they became very, very sort of entrenched and important within communities smaller communities and have remained so for a very very long time yeah definitely uh, sport today is a major driver of national identity mm. so for example the olympic games have become a display of nationalistic pride and physical prowess uh, which translates as assessments of a country's overall excellence Th this is an, a really old tradition obviously the olympic games themselves are really old um, and you, you can go back to ancient Greece and obviously Sparta. Sparta was very big on having yearly games, yeah. um, both for men and women, because this was how you chose someone who was a suitable and healthy wife. If she could run a decent foot race and outshoot the other girls, then that made her a highly desirable bride, for example. Um, but if we even look at it in, in today's terms, you know, great lengths are gone to to achieve a country's supremacy in a given sport. Sometimes there's even a slightly unhealthy bent towards it. But a lot of the time, it's actually an important way of jockeying for position in in a way that isn't actually fundamentally damaging to relations between countries. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to put it baldly like that, but it is actually important in that respect. Yeah. I mean, like, to be honest... It's in some ways, it's kind of like a healthy way of having a war. Well, it's like, okay, yeah. instead of us literally battling it out and killing each other, we will annually play these games, um, and we can get a sense of superiority from from that. Um, and you know, you get it from all sorts of kinds of things. I mean, Eurovision has was on recently, and I <laughs> I feel like. Eurovision is, I mean, okay, technically it's not sport, but Eurovision is very much a competition that isn't a competition. This yeah. is, it's a chance for every country to yearly air its grievances without publicly saying anything. Yeah. And quite often where someone, where a country is put, um, doesn't necessarily depend on the excellence of the song or the singer, but on, on sort of political, how well, how well behaved you've been politically, what you have done for your fellow countries. Yes. Um, and that's not necessarily an unhealthy way of doing things. Yeah. Um, certainly, it's just, yeah, it, as you say, it's, it's a subtle way of kind of airing things out. Definitely. Um, so, um, yeah, competition and, and sport are a form of diplomacy. Yeah. Um, in the West, displays of physical and mental prowess take the place of outright conflict where the cost of life would be too high. So, I mean, I, I'm, I, it's too big a subject to really get into in great depth, but the, the obsession with chess during the Cold War, America was obsessed with coming up with a chess player who was good enough to beat Russia. And in Russia, it was a, you know, it was a professional standard, as in, you know, great chess players were kind of like, superstars mm. of yeah. the time and even though we were technically all at war with each other during the cold war um 
we very much were at war with each other. We just weren't like firing nukes at each other, which was a, a, a good thing, obviously. Yeah. We were all playing chess against each other. So we were jockeying for position by playing chess. I find that sort of really fascinating and also kind of bizarre. Yeah, because since chess is literally like, you know, a mini war. Yeah. There's a king, queen and everything. <laughs> Yes, but, you know, ideally nobody dies. I mean, we say nobody dies, but we, we, we're we pretty sure that both sides at some point had someone offed over a chess game. Yeah. But one person, not an entire army. So, you know, yeah, swings and roundabouts. Um, now, you can moan that the football or the rugby is on again and fine. Maybe you don't enjoy watching sports in general. I don't really enjoy watching sports in general. Me but neither. to boil it down to a few fortunate and overpaid athletes is reductive. Yeah, I think it is. Um, that's not to say that there sh- there aren't other professions that perhaps should be better paid than they are. Yeah. But I think, in hindsight, it's probably a false comparison to say let's look at what nurses are paid and what pro footballers are play- paid. You know, top of the top of the game. Most footballers who play professionally aren't paid that much. You're thinking of your real superstar football players. That's soccer to you in America, by the way. Yeah. Just in case you weren't weren't clear on that we we play rugby here we don't strap on 20 pounds of armor to basically play rugby either <laughs> and call it football despite the and fact that you football. only kick it like once <laughs> yeah but aside from this like cultural compromise that we're, we're sort of nudging each other over um yeah i mean that i suppose the thing you've got to consider with that is like top-of-the-line ballet dancers and things mm. who I don't believe get paid nearly as much as a pro footballer. Um, but your shelf life is limited because you are, I mean, and you start very young, certainly with uh, with football slash soccer over here, um, you might get picked up for a team and be an absolute superstar at 16 yeah. and you might be retiring at 25. You'll certainly be retiring at 35. If you go into something like, if you happen to play a position like um, goalkeeper you might like david seaman did actually make it to 40 but you are absolutely retiring at that age yeah because you just physically cannot keep up with a 16 year old yeah um and it's the set you know and this isn't obviously just for kind of very uh, sort of rough and tumble sports things like ice skating and as you said ballet and stuff like that it's a short intense career absolutely so I think we we'd see the ones who really hit the top of the game and get paid mega bucks and you're looking at it and thinking why is he being offered something like 7 million per game. And there is more riding on it than just just a football match. Yeah. Um, in terms of it's the nationalistic pride aspect. It's the this is a form of diplomacy and we are sending a footballer as a diplomat which sounds insane but actually it does kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not behind. I I still think doctors, and nurses, you know, people who provide essential services should be paid more than they are. But and yeah. it it is irritating. But at the same time, <clears throat> there's more behind it than merely kicking a ball from one end of the field to the other. Yeah. So let's talk about the human need for competition, uh, because we've said this before, but you know it does bear repeating that less than a tenth of one percent of our DNA has changed since we were living in caves as a species. Let's just think about that for a second. 
Yeah. We are still essentially cavemen, but with access to better clothing, food and technology. Yeah, we're cavemen with Twitter, I mean. <laughs> Which explains a lot it when you think really about does. it in those terms. Yep, it really does. Now, it would have been hugely costly to the species to continually be in a state of tribal warfare back then. Sure, fights probably definitely happened, and there would have been deaths by violence, but for the most part, our cave-dwelling ancestors would have tried to get along, because everything else was already trying to kill us. Yeah, it's amazing how much we will pull together in tribes and as a species as a whole when everything else is out to eat us or kill us in some other way. Um, one of the ways they did this getting along was by was via competition. So large gatherings featuring multiple clans or tribes all meeting together most likely occurred and we've got fairly good evidence for that. Um, these gatherings would have been essential for trade, both goods and knowledge. Matings and adoptions, you know, you, you don't want to just mate people within your own tribe. You want to, you know, do a little bit of cross-pollination there. Yep. It's good for genetic drift. And just generally ensuring the health of the wider community. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's it's the, the whole thing with, like, whenever there's an apocalypse you know, apocalyptic thing and you just say all the tribes all fighting each other and it's just they're like, okay, yes, it's the fight for resources but also I feel like people actually do tend to band together quite a lot if it's two small yeah. groups. There's actually, I mean after the initial sort of, okay, I'm going to look after my family and then you extend your concept of family to the people who are working with you, who you've banded together with, strangely enough, because this happens Yeah. and then you extend it to even more people after that, it becomes a sort of, well, the best way of protecting my family, my tribe, is actually to enter diplomatic relations with this tribe who has something that we want and they have something that they want. Mm. And, you know, the whole fighting thing actually would happen far less than people believe. But that doesn't make a great zombie novel, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so with these big gatherings of cave people, there would have still have been a subtle and not-so-subtle jockeying for position. And by the end of a gathering, everyone would know which tribe was the wealthiest and most, most powerful, mm. something which was measured generally on the health, athleticism, cunning, innovation, and ability to create leisure time of its members. The ability to create leisure time is really important. Um, yeah. You can still see this in sort of anthropological studies now. But let's say that you have one tribe that manages to create 90 amber beads. One member of a tribe creates 90 amber beads. Amber's not difficult to work. But it's not easy to work when all you've got are stone tools. Yeah. Think about that. This person can create beads. It takes maybe, I don't know, 30 hours to create a single bead of mm. the right size and shape with a, a, a hole bored through the middle. Everything smooths perfect so it can be sewn onto a tunic. Yeah. And you're kind of like, what's the value of that? Because you can't eat a bead. Well, the point is, this person clearly has shelter and fuel for heat and they have food and they have it in sufficient quantities that they can actually take time out from just surviving to make a fucking bead. Yes. So if they can actually make 90 beads, then they have so much leisure time that they are basically millionaires. Yeah. That's what I mean by leisure time being a form of wealth. If you've got nothing else that you need to worry about, that you can just sit and make beads because that's what interests you, Basically, art comes out of leisure time to a certain extent from in this perspective. Yes. So fulfilling that creative side, 
comes from the wealth of knowing that you've got enough to eat. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, that's that's part of the whole competition aspect. <laughs> but one of the less subtle ways that um, this this jockeying for position, who's the who's got the best tribe at the gathering, was judged would be through physical competition. So hunt dances, spear throwing, foot races, etc. Yeah, stuff that's essential for survival. Yeah. Um, and we're really not so different now. I mean, school sports days are important because they feed into this. You know, school sports teams competing against each other fill the same niche. And while it's not currently fashionable to point this out, young people actually need a physical outlet for their energies. Sport and competitions are good in this capacity. Now, I am thoroughly of the belief that they're... That the way that sometimes this is gone about isn't quite right and that everyone is going to need a different kind of thing but for the most part given the correct options most kids will engage in some kind of sport or another they just may want different levels of competition um, and different ways of sort of expressing it yeah absolutely and you know i don't actually have a problem with sort of everyone gets a medal for participating I do have a problem with let's remove the first, second and third place so that, you know, all competition is meaningless. And I think it needs to be tiered towards certain age groups as well, Mm. um, because there's always going to be people who are better than you at certain things. And that's okay. You might be better at certain things that they're not as good at. The whole point is learning what your niche is and what you want to work at. Mm. Um, I don't think competition is unhealthy in that respect. I do think it can take, you know, there needs to be perspective around it as well, though. Yeah. I think that that's where there's kind of an issue. And it's probably a little bit more than we can really get into today. But by and large, yeah, you you know, we should be providing outlets for people to do, say, nature walks and things at school. Or, yeah. you know, it shouldn't just be a kind of like, well, it's sport. You know, you've got PE today and everyone's going to run five kilometres. Yeah. And it's like... That might, you know, while that might be the ideal, particularly, you know, even with the really fit kids, the fit kids are going to be like, I've never run five kilometres before. I don't know how to do this. It's too much. I remember um, clearly our PE teacher had run out of ideas that one day. I think it was 13, 14. Mm -hmm. And this was at a girls' school. And she's like, you're going to do X number of laps. I've measured it. And that comes to three miles. You're going to run three miles. None of us had run three miles in one go before. Absolutely none of us. And this was a girls' school, so there was quite a lot of emphasis on sport and being quite sporty. There were very few girls in the class who sat out of PE regularly because they didn't like it yeah. or because they felt uncomfortable. You, you know, you didn't have the focus of boys of the same age looking at you and the, the stupid little skirts and pants and things you had to wear. Yeah. Um, so there, there wasn't that aspect of things. But it was still kind of a, this is something you build up to. You don't just go to a bunch of 14-year-old girls, you're going to run three and a half miles today. You work up to that. Yeah. Um, that's my opinion. So yes, sometimes it's tackled in the wrong way. But it, you know, it's still a necessary, you know, just encouraging kids to go out during break time and be outside for a bit is kind of important. Yeah. And giving them the capacity, I think one of the things I was very lucky to have was a lot of options when it came to sport which meant that even if I wasn't very happy with certain sports certain team sports I could do 
other forms of sports, such as martial arts instead, which suited me much more. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I think I, I played on a lot of the teams, but I didn't want, and I was asked to play on the school tennis team, and I said no. And actually, the PE teacher said, "Okay, if you don't want to do that, that's fine." And I remember my house got really annoyed with me because I had had private tennis lessons at one point. Um, and they're like, oh, no, you're good enough to play. I said, but yeah, but I don't actually like playing it. So I'm just going to resent this evening that I have to spend doing tennis competitions. I'm not doing it. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is another thing. Why we kind of get engaged with this, even if we don't really like watching or reading about sport by yeah. itself. But why we can get really, really hooked on it in speculative fiction is competence is sexy. Yes, it is. And I've got to say, you know, even if you don't really care about a certain sport, you know, I'm not I'm I don't tend to watch a lot of sports or things like that. But if you see someone doing something very competently, particularly in a sport, you stop and you look like I don't care about David Beckham, but I've seen some of his kicks, Yeah, you know, and you think wow okay good job that that's a pretty competent kick right there and like i will just sit and stare i was gonna say drooling i didn't mean drooling like that but i will sit and stare open-mouthed at ice skaters for example i love watching figure skating figure skating because it's just incredible it's the dynamics the physics of it as well yeah and they again they make it look effortless i love watching ballet yeah i actually kind of like watching dancing when it's done well probably because we were made to do country dancing at school and Mm -hmm. i sucked i really i failed my silver medal and they wouldn't let me take the gold one so (laughs) that was it it's one of the few things i've really outright failed at i was like nope did did not take to dancing terribly well (laughs) certainly not country dancing at that age so you know these these things happen don't they but i love watching proper ballroom dancing Mm. Yeah. Um, sports, especially unusual sports in speculative fiction, is popular partly because we do love watching the main character, main character succeed, um, because we are also succeeding with them. Yeah, definitely. Um, you can't, you know, if it's done really well with an author, um, you're kind of with them through the struggle and you're with them when they get their moment of success or their moment on the way of success and you're kind of maybe even punching the air a little bit with them mm. you know you get that that rush of dopamine from the main character succeeding yeah now if a character is kind of at a disadvantage in other ways we do also love seeing them succeed at something either through grit or determination or with a flash of natural talent. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think I'm slightly more of the okay, this is something you're good at but you're not you're not, you know, you're not a, a pro player or whatever straight out of the gate. Mm. Um but watching you think, well, I've got a flash of talent and I'm going to work really really hard at it kind of you know, that's the best possible combination for me. That that that's the butter right there. <laughs> yeah, I really like it when you do have a sort of character who's they have something which is unique, which on its own isn't necessarily that impressive. Or it's impressive, but it just it's a bit of a gimmick. But when they apply it to something else, um, it really, really makes a difference. Now, I don't really watch 
um, a lot of sports anime or or a lot of sports sort of shows or anything like that. But there have been a few examples of that. Um, like there's an anime called Haikyuu, which involves volleyball. And one of the characters, he's really good at jumping. He's very short, and so he's learned to jump very high. Um, and he's actually not very good at lots of other things, but he's quick and he can jump high. And so they kind of like, okay, well, let's work on that, but you need to work on everything else because actually you're pretty shit at everything else, but you're very dedicated. So they like that about him. And I thought that's a, a really nice, unique thing is that people go, he's fast. Um, and yeah. he jumps high. Uh, and then you've got other ones, which is like someone is just seems to be very good at, at sort of like sneaking around. He doesn't really have a sense of presence. And so you never quite know where he is on the court. Um, and it's like small things like that, you know, uh, or you seem to have a really good eye for being able to follow the ball or, you know, etc. Um I just I like it when they have things like that and okay now we just need to sort of get you up to scratch with everything else yeah um so yeah uh, uh, together with this and uh, the speculative fiction banner training montages yes. training montages are you know Gold. how are they not everyone's favorite thing or one of their favorite things so yeah in series where it's kind of like we need to collapse the timeline a little bit but we need to show that they're working really hard and they're dedicated and they're getting better so you get a training montage. They're great to watch. Yeah. I think they kind of came out of the 80s movie thing and they've never really died out. Yeah. And I, honestly, I just love them because you feel like you get all the sort of the serotonin and the dopamine from watching them go through that like you've been through it. All that sense of success <laughs> without any really any of the hard work. <laughs> yes, yeah, like I've worked really, really hard here. <laughs> and there are classic tropes within the training montage as well. So you know someone's working on let's say martial arts one and they're, they're stretching and they're in pain and their punches are getting stronger and they're still having to study for high school so they're falling asleep with their glasses askew over their yeah. ears and what have you yeah <laughs> and you're just kind of like yeah there you go training montage yep butter butter again <laughs> it is it's just i love it um okay <laughs> Competence in a what we would consider a weird and wonderful sport. It doesn't have to be weird and wonderful as in full of magic, or, although that's a great thing in speculative fiction. Yes. It can just be something that it's not common. Not many people that you know automatically are good at it, unless you happen to be into that sport. Yeah. Um, but we're hooked, particularly if the author manages to explain it to us in a way that's interesting. So for me, a good example of this is... Uh, Tamora Pierce in her uh, Protector of the Small series. Mm -hmm. You've got Caladri who was training to be a knight and she learns to joust against the boys and against her, her knight master. Mm -hmm. And she's literally a walking bruise for most of the book. <laughs> Strangely enough, because when you're charging on a war horse against someone else who is huge on an even bigger war horse and you're going to get hit and you're going to get thrown out of the saddle, etc., and she did it in a way that was really interesting, an interesting part of Caladri's um, character journey and was relevant much, much later on. And it's just, it, was, it wasn't a case of, well, you need to do this with the, it, it wasn't presented in a way that you had to be a really horsey person to enjoy it. Mm. Although I do like horses. <laughs> but I think you could have just, or, you know, someone really into martial arts, you didn't have to, it just, it was just kind of 
relatively factual but also quite exciting at the same time yeah. enough that there's enough that when i was writing um treason and you've got gregory jousting i'm kind of like oh i'm feeling all the same excitement now than i felt before <laughs> yes um there's also the added one which is that if you have a competition which is deadly your audience is likely to be in <laughs> Oh yeah, if you get them hooked to the character and it's like, they're really competent at this and their life is literally going to depend on it and they don't want to compete because it's to the death. Yeah. That's very, very exciting. So all of these things speak to our caveman brain. Mm -hmm. We can't help it. Yeah. So we may as well roll into it. <laughs> yes. <sighs> okay. Um... Let's actually look at some examples of sports in speculative fiction. Yes. Uh, we're going to start with the obvious one, which is obviously Quidditch from Harry Potter, which it became so popular you can actually play it now. Yeah, I've seen that. And it, weirdly, it looks more dangerous because they don't fly on the brooms. Yeah. So I'm not sure about that. But OK, fine. You guys do you. Weirdly, uh, whatever else you may think about Harry Potter these days... Um, Quidditch was a stroke of genius because it plays off of the same rush that people get from things like football and American football um, and basketball and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it adds in things like hockey where things may come flying towards you. So you've got the microviolence aspect, which, you know, whether people like to admit it or not, they do find exciting. And then the added thing of the trust exercises where you're being protected by your teammates who keep things like the bludgers away from you is very, very cleverly layered. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like it's like netball and hurling. <laughs> yeah, basically. In the air. <laughs> so it's just, and yeah, the magic aspect, you have to be able, a witch or wizard, you have to be able to fly a broom. Yeah. So you might not be into sport, but I don't think many people go, oh, yeah, I skip the Quidditch passages because they don't outstay their welcome either. No, they don't. Um, and you are kind of with it the whole time. You're kind of tricked into liking sports. You're like, oh, <laughs> but if it was this sport, then I'd watch it. Um... <laughs> but yeah, it, it does give you the same dopamine rush, I believe. Yeah. Um, okay, archery and you know fighting in general in the Hunger Games, but very particularly the archery. Yes. Who doesn't get a little bit of a tingle when Katniss hits something dead on? And this is a skill she's had to cultivate illegally. Yeah. Making her own bows and things in order to survive to feed her family, and it just might give her an edge in the dead most deadly competition of all. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, there is something delicious about it, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and there's some great moments when she's using it as well. I think because she's not invested in the competition, she's invested in being alive. Yes. <laughs> Ideally at the end of the competition. Um, and obviously going in the first place in on behalf of her sister. Mm. So, yeah, and it's just sort of amazing to watch it, you know, even as you're reading um, things like she's she's so angry about the entire thing that their lives are held so cheap so when they're supposed to be given a rating so that people can basically bet on them and bet on how quickly they'll die um, 
she's so furious that the judges aren't even looking at her. She's the last person to go in, so she's not going to get a good rating. So people aren't going to bet on her. So they're not going to send her things that might help her survive in the arena. Um, she shoots an apple out of a um, out of a pig's mouth, which yeah. is on a buffet table nearby, and you know scares the shit out of them. Yeah. And they kind of make her a target by giving her a really high rating, but it's kind of, it's a mixed blessing because it's like well the other tributes are gonna go gun for her now yeah but that moment is so incredibly satisfying and it there's really so is. many other moments like that yeah absolutely also you kind of like the contempt that goes with it thank you for your consideration yeah i'm dying for your entertainment you can at least pay attention to me yeah i'm a child dying for your entertainment you could at least pay attention to me yeah not least um, okay, the teeth show and handball in the Liza Block Lamora. They also have like the living sort of chess game thing. Yeah, in that's is that the third book? It's the second book. Second book, yeah. But the teeth show is uh it's it's entirely female gladiators, isn't it? Not all of it, no, but actually yes, sorry, it, it is, is for the teeth show, yes it is. It is. Basically, the teeth show is where female gladiators who do death-defying acrobatics against leaping sharks. Yeah. Um, that's kind... I wouldn't say it gives you an immediate dopamine rush, but it definitely makes you pay attention. It really, really does, yeah. Um, and I like the fact that it's it's entirely original and yet it feels grounded, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and it's kind of grounded in this upper middle class, merchant class, wealthy class because they sit around on barges sipping wine and betting. Yeah. And it's this the, the decadence is kind of a bit disgusting, but also a bit compelling at the same time. Yeah. It does interest me, though, because you've, <laughs> you've got Locke who basically kind of wants to have his back to it most of the time. Yeah. And, he, and he's like... This is a bit gross, to be honest, but I've kind of just got to act like it's relatively normal. Um, but even he's kind of fascinated, and even he's like, you, you've got to be amazed at their at their skills, because it is skills. They're like dancers, essentially. Yeah, it kind of calls back to the um, the bull dancing in yeah. Crete, doesn't it? It, you know, it where does, you yeah. Have, um, seven youths and seven maidens were taught to do acrobatics across the back of a bull. Yeah. Which is, you know, don't recommend that for safety reasons, guys. Yeah, sounds like a not a great idea for anybody really involved. But also the um, the female gladiators um, in ancient Rome, where, you know, initially women were kind of carted in and thrown into the arena with beasts and, and, other, and other male gladiators and things for titillation purposes, because after a while watching people hack each other to pieces for entertainment loses its savour so what do you do you add something scandalous in like a woman and then they found out that some of them particularly if they'd taken them from from celtic tribes were actually pretty good fighters so it became a new thing to bet on you know woman versus tiger for example yeah horrible but um the handball uh, correct me if i'm wrong but handball is kind of like a lower class sport but it does have its own myth and origin and stuff with it as well mm yeah um <laughs> it's well there was another bit i think cuz i think they were there was another one in the second book where that it's not quite tennis but it's sort of tennis and again it's it's kind of like an upper upper class version of handball 
that yeah. they were playing and stuff like that. I liked the way that you kind of saw class divides and stuff like that um, with the games in The Lies of Locke Lamora. Yeah, it's an excellent bit of world building in that respect, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and again, with the living chess, which is pretty de- deadly. Yeah. In fact, the, the chess in, in Harry Potter, the first book, is kind of deadly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. But the living chess... Chess is far more dangerous than you think it yeah, is. The living chess in, in Locke Lamora was harrowing to the extent that even Locke is like this is awful I'm gonna sack this town (laughs) (laughs) Um, speaking of chess chess becomes like the sexiest not you know quasi sport imaginable in the Queen's Gambit which isn't technically speculative fiction other Mm. than that it's historical it's set in the 60s during the Cold War Mm -hmm. and you have you start off with the main character who is a, a young girl in an orphanage and she's basically just sort of abandoned there. Um, her mother is alive, but she's just left in this orphanage. And how they managed a lot of kids in orphanages at that time was they drugged them with tranquilizers. That's how they kept them biddable. It's horrendous. There was there was a lot of fallout when this came out many, many decades later. Because a lot of them ended up addicted to tranquilizers, strangely enough. Yeah. Um, but this particular girl... Uh, strikes up a sort of friendship with a janitor who is playing chess against himself in the basement and she's watching him and she just she she begs to join in and he kind of teaches her chess and she catches on really really quickly because between the tranquilizers and the fact that she lies in bed thinking about chess at night she can see the lines of play you know how some chess players can look at a board and see lines of probability so they can see sort of six moves ahead yeah and she is, at, at a very young age, sort of about nine, she is very, very good. She beats him. And then she starts consistently beating him. And he teaches her about gamesmanship. And it, it goes on. And eventually she does end up back with her mother. Or she, no, she ends up with a foster family, I believe. Mm-hmm. And she finds out there's chess competitions she could make money from. Um, she speaks to a teacher at school and says, look, if I could just enter this competition, but it's $5 and I don't have $5... So she gets through this entire abusive childhood um, through playing chess and, you know, gradually just adding to her stash of winnings. Yeah. Um, to the point where she becomes a chess, she's a chess prodigy. She's a chess sensation. She's horribly addicted to tranquilizers the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and this then translates into other addictions. She has problems with alcohol and with other drugs and things. You know, it is the 60s. It's kind of all readily available and and uh, you know it's out there and she just has difficulty forming relationships with people but she's excellent at chess and the, the final hurdle for her to get over to compete in Russia against the best that Russia's got to offer when she's like 20 years old is the fact that she needs to understand that she can quit all the substances and she'll still be able to play because she somewhere in her head she's li- linked the tranquilizers with being able to see the lines of play yeah, and actually, it's just her, but it's an incredibly satisfying story because she falls down and fucks up, and she loses to nerves, and she underestimates people, which is always a mistake, no matter how good you are. Mm. Um, and and yeah, it's absolutely compelling. Even if you think, oh, chess is boring, or I don't like chess, I'm not interested. I defy you to watch that series and not get really invested in her <laughs> journey. Yeah, and I think successful series that sort of 
tie in the sports or the competition with the character and their development is really where it's at. It becomes yeah. a story about life and people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another example, Jump Ball in Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers is <laughs> it is, is basically satire. Um, mm-hmm. For those, you know, I'm sure most people would watch it and go, oh, this is satire. This is this is basically making a commentary about about um, totalitarian societies kind of thing. But the jump ball is kind of like basketball, except with a lot more backflips and you know, <laughs> acrobatics and stuff. And it they play in mixed teams, which I think is pretty cool. So it's great. And then obviously they all join the, this young class of people join the army effectively Mm -hmm. but the army is fighting these giant insects on other worlds oh this is is where i lose madeline (laughs) (laughs) i've lost i'm gone (laughs) what's interesting about jump ball is i think the the greatest weighting of uh point of view is given to the young guy who actually doesn't do very well at school he's a great athlete but he's not really great in terms of a scholarship or whatever mm-hmm. so he doesn't end up getting into a command post that way he doesn't end up getting into science he doesn't end up getting into a pilot he's literally just a grunt mm-hmm. and yet he kind of gets field promoted all the way up because you know he's not stupid he's just not academically very gifted yeah. he's kind of wasted a lot of time um and you know the jump ball comes in when he actually manages to save his squad by pulling a move out of jump ball against this massive insect <laughs> which I thought was an interesting callback. <laughs> just to say, it doesn't have to be a huge part of the plot. You can no. just kind of use it like a Chekhov's gun. Yeah. That's pretty cool, actually. I kind of like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I've mentioned the graphic novel series Fence by S.C. Packett yes. um, before. And yes, it is centred around these intense friendships and romantic relationships within a boys, an elite boys boarding school that focuses on fencing. Um, but she makes fencing and the competence of fencing very accessible and very sexy in the way that she does it. In the sense of it's just really, OK, now I've said that, I'm worried about the whole, yeah, two boys waving their swords and bashing their swords together kind of thing. Mm. And it's like, OK, there's an unfortunate metaphor right there. <laughs> but moving on from that, moving on from that, the whole fencing thing um, is, is really fascinating. Even if you're not into fencing I and, and you like graphic novels, I defy you not to find those really, really compelling and you just want to binge read them. Yeah. I've, I, I mean, I, I do like fencing regardless, so uh, I do have it on my to-be-read list. It does look very, very interesting. Um, you then have uh, ballet, and that's the, the Splendour Falls, isn't it? Yeah, uh, this is one of my favourite books of all time, which is a fairly short list. Um, and actually, the ballet doesn't come into it that much because the ballet is very much in the background mm. uh, because Sylvie is one of the youngest prima ballerinas ever. She's 17 when she makes the prima ballerina slot. Um, and then during her first real prima ballerina performance, she does an unfortunate step down and has a compound fracture of the tibia and fibula. Oh no! And her ballet career is over at seventeen, and it's awful. She, you know, she's been dancing professionally for a couple of years, um, all over the world as well. 
and yet ballet runs as a thread through the entire ghost story that surrounds it. Um, her ability to perceive things, the fact that she does actually have access to magic, but it's magic that comes from a creative aspect within herself and it's all gone into ballet and now ballet's taken away she's starting to notice other things like another world yeah and it's just it's subtle but um the the competence the sheer grit and everything she's put into it and the fact that she's so determined then gets transferred to living life going forward also there is an adorable little dog in it as well <laughs> sold <Just> as- <laughs> So I love that. Um, there's also uh, Isabel. No, that's not the right name. Okay. Author name gone out of my head. It's worrying when this happens. But there is the Company of Swans, which is set in sort of 19, 19, early 1900s. And you have the main character who desperately wants to go and dance with the you know, the ballet corp when it goes overseas to, to the Amazon, to basically the theatre in the Amazon. There's a theatre in the Amazon rainforest, believe it or not, which served the rubber barons of the time. And she desperately wants to go. And she's come, she's come from this quite abusive background. So she runs away to the ballet. And the whole thing is just a, a sort of beautiful spin on Swan Lake, hmm. but, but with the same sort of um, intelligence that the author brings to all her other things as well. Okay, cool. We then, of course, have a really obvious one, which is racing. Um, and this is used all the time. Uh, so it, it, this can be in pods, this could be in ships, this could be using strange beasts or horses. We see it in Star Wars, we see it in City of Stars, you see it in anime all the time, you see it in uh, D&D, you, you see it in graphic novels. <laughs> Yeah, I think there must be some law with Star Wars, some unwritten rule that there will be a race scene or a, a racing ship competence type scene at some point in the film. I mean, like, even any long running series, there's usually a race, you know, episode yeah. <laughs> of some kind. And I've got to say, I, I'm not a fan of car racing. I'm not interested in Formula One. Um my child has punctuated with Sundays where my dad would watch Formula One racing and it just reminds me of being stuck indoors on a rainy day and hearing it droning away in the background so I genuinely don't like it but you give me a little spaceship yeah or a pod or something in Star Wars and I'm like yeah I'm in I'm watching yeah absolutely um you just you can't help yourself can you (laughs) I really really love it it's because you're there you're part of the race you know you get all the tension from it, um, and I just, I think it works every single time. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a case. Well, there probably are definitely cases where it hasn't worked or it hasn't been exciting, but it definitely injects excitement. I think into it yeah. any scene. And there's the, the children's book series Stravaganza. Do you remember those? Uh, yes. And uh, the second book, City of Stars, I believe. Yeah, is based around this Siena because all of them are based around an Italian city-state, but it's based around Siena. Yeah, but the Siena of this other world of Stravaganza. Yeah, and um, the the main character is a girl who's being horribly bullied by her stepbrother at home. But when she's in when she's in this Stravaganza type world, um, she becomes this fearless um, girl who's disguised herself as a boy to take part in the really dangerous, by the way, Siena horse race. Yes, except that she's got a winged horse. 
which I think <laughs> is pretty good to have. Which is, which is really cool. So <laughs> I'm really enjoying that one as well. Yes. So those are just some examples. Um, obviously, this is not a complete list. Uh, we'd love to hear more examples of what you guys think. What are your favourite ones? I mean, a, a few sort of honorary mentions. Um, pretty much all of the sporting kind of events that happen in, uh, <laughs> in things like... Um, well, I mean, like the Triwizard Tournament in Harry Potter. Uh, yeah. The... Uh, sort of the competitions and stuff like that and the exams in things like My Hero Academia um, etc I just they always they always tickle me I think (laughs) Um, yeah you can't help being invested can you you can't help yeah so what are your favourite examples guys do let us know now we're going to finish off by kind of discussing why we don't see more sports being picked up by um, speculative authors yeah this isn't to say that anyone has to include this stuff it's just it's kind of a comparatively easy world building thing to include yeah um you know just to give a little bit of cultural and nationalistic type flavor or Mm -hmm. you know background or whatever so is it because you know sci-fi nerds are not really sports fans well we know that's not true because there's there's usually something you're interested in um i'm not much of one for watching sport even martial arts i'm a bit sort of like well it depends on the martial art because unless you're really invested in a particular martial art it can be quite boring to watch even Mm. if you know what's happening yeah i'm and i'm actively sort of like you cannot get me to watch darts or or cricket or anything like that because yawn although i know that that's somebody else's sort of like that's their afternoon i don't watch wimbledon i don't like watching the tennis yeah um but having said that, I wouldn't say I'm not a fan of sport. It's just I like to take part. <laughs> yeah. And that is one of the key things about writing it, um, is that your reader is taking part by proxy. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think it's that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe not being comfortable enough with a sport they like enough to include it. So... Yeah. thinking well I'd have to do an awful lot of research on this sport in order to include it I don't feel enthusiastic or I don't feel certain enough yeah or that I don't feel like I could represent it well enough um, and I think one of the things is that uh, some something that also turns a lot of people off is that they think actually I'm not very good at writing action scenes or stuff like that and therefore I just don't think people would enjoy this because I, I can't write the technical elements and I think really what comes into that then is understanding how you can mix the kind of the technical elements in a way that's palatable and enjoyable with with this is going to sound cheesy but the heart elements yeah absolutely I mean if you don't like writing battle scenes, you might find that having a sport there and doing a sports type scene for competition um, will, you know, add conflict, can be funny, yeah. can be tragic, can add drama, etc. You know, the way Fence does the whole enemies to lovers thing, so they're literally at sword point. So <laughs> that there's a lot of options there that don't necessarily need to include bloodshed. Yeah, it, it always reminds me of Riker versus his father in that sports that that wrestling thing yeah. which seems to make no sense but <laughs> or, or the um the, the vulcan captain versus cisco's team doing baseball yeah <laughs> which is actually an archaic earth sport that no one plays anymore really at that point in deep space nine and how 
how you know wound up he gets about it how invested and we must win and by the end he's kind of laughing because the whole point was to bring the team together and play the game which everyone has done yeah um i think maybe some authors assume there's a lack of interest amongst the target audience on sports which you know is clearly not the case when you present someone with something like quidditch yeah um and again you've got to think of what's its place within the story um, yeah. You might have some, just small elements of sports, so such as in the lives of Locke Lamora, where they mention handball, where they mention uh, the teeth games and stuff like that. These are in the background; they're part of the world building. It's not something that the main characters are really invested in. Um, or you could have it where it is a little bit more central. So, like for the first few books, you know, Harry is very, very interested in the Quidditch stuff. It's actually a big part of, you know, his his story, particularly in the first book. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it, it will depend, um, and how much it ties in is going to sort of change the level of interest. I think with the reader. Yeah, I mean it's not generally just linked with science fiction and fantasy because, I mean, if you look at the the the, the originators of sort of modern science fiction and fantasy, hmm. you don't get people like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis necessarily, including sport, as such. No, but Tolkien did include a lot of walking. He did include a lot of walking, but <laughs> walking's definitely exercise. Would we consider it sport? <laughs> Don't know. At this point. <laughs> At that point, yeah, they're like professional level walkers. walkers yeah. And to be fair, you know, Aragorn already is. So, yes. um, so yeah, maybe there would be more. I mean, he's literally called Strider. <laughs> <laughs> it's his professional walking name. Um... <laughs> So yeah, you know, as you see more of it, maybe more of it will be in there. Um, I always really liked the fact that in the Cushiel's Dart series, one of the things they, I mean, which is is largely about a a courtesan who's very, whose speciality is being a submissive in BDSM type games, but she's also a spy. But the the sports that her her indentured master, if you like, Mm Um, has her do it she he has her learn tumbling and gymnastics to keep her so that she stays fit and lean and supple because without going into too much detail but the, the whole idea of being tied up and things you your joints need to be quite flexible yeah so yes you can have a mention of sport and still have it kind of really tie into the story um slight tangent there sorry about that no no not at all so this is definitely something that you should guys should think about when it comes to your world building. We're not telling you that you have to include sport, but it can be a really, really good way of adding flavour or adding a whole other dimension to your writing. And it's well worth considering. Yes, it absolutely is. So let us know, what are some of your favourite fictional or fantastical sports? Uh, do you think we've missed out any that you... Uh, that you really particularly like Uh, do you disagree with any of the ones that we've put forward we'd love to hear from you remember you can get in touch with us via our facebook our twitter or our tumblr both individually or through the dissecting dragons pages now before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i believe that you've got one for us i have um i would have recommended this a few weeks ago but i think we had other plans but basically this is a book that i read 
and then I immediately messaged everyone I know who likes science fiction and fantasy <laughs> said you have to drop everything and read this book um I'm pretty sure everybody is kind of like really hopped onto this book now even though you know this is an indie published book mm-hmm. um but it, it's gained a lot of popularity and it deserves it this is Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry. This is about an orc who was once a mercenary who wants to leave the life of killing for money and being a sellsword. So she takes her final payment and she moves to a part of the, this fantasy country where she doesn't know anyone, no one knows her, mm-hmm. and looks about setting up a tavern in order to not have an... and looks up setting up a coffee shop. Um, coffee is not known in the area but she's traveled a lot so she knows about coffee and um, how it's served etc and experimenting with other things and she puts her her last payment her payoff if you like into creating this coffee shop and it it follows all the ins and outs of starting up a, a small business a succubus comes along as her main member of staff and joins her um, there is an adorable female female slow burn romance there as well and a found family and it's just a really cozy fantasy with a little bit of conflict and it's just absolutely adorable it's the cutest book ever it's really good so everyone needs to go and read that that sounds so cute go and read it come back talk to me about it and we can all (laughs) despair together that the author has not yet produced more work (laughs) and travis baudry if by any chance you happen to be listening to this could you please stop listening and go and get writing thank you very much (laughs) You heard the woman. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely on my to-be-read list. It sounds adorable. Great audiobook as well. Okay. Oh, that's worth knowing. All right. And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah. Thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.